thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Salt and Light, where we'll cover foundational principles for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Enjoy this episode with ears to hear and hearts that listen. So let's go check the facts with your host, also known as my dad, Casey Harrison. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Salt and Light Ministries, where we're going through the foundation series. Specifically, this mini-series is called Submitting to Sovereignty. And over the last two episodes, we've uh, asked three questions about who God is and who mankind is, and we also answered those. Questions like, who is God? Who is mankind? What are God's limits? What are mankind's limits? How much control can God handle? How much control can we handle? And as it pertains to God, God's omniscient, all-knowing, God's omnipotent, all-powerful, God's omnipresent everywhere all at the same time. Basically, creation is God's creation. He can't be limited by his creation because as the creator, he's outside of his creation in the same way that a potter is outside of the piece of pottery he is making. Therefore, God is unlimited. He can handle all control in any and all situations, especially the ones when it pertains to relationship, because that's what we were created for in the first place, was relationship. Answering the same questions to mankind. Who is mankind? Mankind is a created being. We are not mistakes. Mankind is the perfect expression of God. In the same way that a new baby is the perfect expression of his or her parents and not a clone, we're the perfect expression of God, not clones of God. We're not exact replicas. And thirdly, mankind is imperfect and flawed. Yes, I said we were the perfect expressions of God. That was before the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Basically, Before sin came into this world, mankind was the perfect expression, limited to only one command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After mankind disobeyed God, the created being became broken, very limited, which was proven by the actions of Adam and Eve and the garden. And we touched on a little bit of that last week, but we're also going to get into that more as time goes on. Simply put, God can handle everything and anything. Mankind thinks he can handle everything and anything. I'm your host, Casey Harrison, and let's dive into part three of Submitting to Sovereignty. This week, we're going to take a closer look at sovereignty. We're going to find out what it means, and we're also going to find out what genetically altered Christianity says it means. Because the meaning of words matter. Words matter. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, sticks and stones can break my bones. That's a fact. But words will never hurt me? That's a bold-faced lie. Words hurt. Especially if words are used in the wrong context. Outside of their intended meaning. And I don't mean slang words that are meant to be uplifting. Such as, that's sick. Apparently, that means that's pretty good. At least in this day and age. Instead of what sick actually means, I've come down with a disease. No, that's sick. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Cool. For the older generation, that's totally tubular, dude. I know I went very far back, but that's totally tubular. Doesn't mean that it's a long tube-like structure that's hollow. It meant something was awesome or incredible. 
I'm talking more about words that degrade people when certain words are used outside of their original meaning. An example would be the same word for a female dog. You know, you know what I'm talking about. B-I-T, insert, insert. That word literally means female dog. But when it's used to describe the actions of another person, it becomes hurtful and harmful. I mean, think about it. You're comparing a person to a four-legged female animal. It's pretty degrading. Words matter. Using words in the proper way matters. Using words in the proper context of the culture matters as well. Just like it's dangerous to use words outside of their original definitions, it's equally as dangerous to use words outside of the original culture. What do I mean by that? Okay, here's an example. I've got a friend who used to work for Samaritan's Purse down in Africa. She was a speech therapist and she gave speech therapy to kids and adults after they had surgery on their mouth to correct different issues like cleft lips, cleft palates. And she would help them learn how to talk again. Well, one day, one of the kids that she was working with, she was trying to tell them that that was good. You're doing a great job. That was good. And he came back using what I would call the S word or a word used to describe crap over here in America. He came back and said, that's, uh, that's, uh. it kind of caught my friend off guard because in her culture, that means something derogatory. Until my friend actually did some more research and found out that over in the culture in which she was serving, that word actually meant really good. The exact opposite of what it means over here in America. So she had the opportunity to get offended, but instead she chose to dig into the culture and figure out what that word meant to them. And then she was able to use that word and apply it to where she was at in the way that she was serving. So cultural definitions matter in the same way that the original definition of the words matter as well. When words are used improperly, they can degrade, displace, and demolish someone's integrity, their character, and their status, in the, not only the eyes of themselves, but also in the eyes of others. Well, let's apply that to God, because the same applies to the words we attribute to God. We have to use words to describe God in the same context of culture they were originally used in. Because if we use words in the wrong manner, they can damage God's integrity, God's character, and God's status in the eyes of others. Now, I know that sounds a little crazy that we can actually use words to damage God's in uh, integrity, to damage God's character. Wow, we have the ability to do that? Okay, we can't actually damage God's character. We can't actually damage God's integrity. But we can damage the perception of other people that are looking at God. And if we damage that perception by the words that we use, then we've damaged their ability to connect. How we perceive someone ultimately determines how much we're going to trust them. So we're going to focus in on sovereignty today. Three words, actually. Sovereignty, control, and cause. So let's find out some base definitions for these words and use them in the cultural context and how they apply to the relationship with God. Sovereign. The definition of sovereign used as a noun is supreme ruler. Well, when you use it as an adjective, it means possessing supreme or ultimate power. And power is the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. 
To be clear, the words sovereign and sovereignty as it relates to God, you can't find that anywhere in the original Hebrew and the Greek text. Now, you will see it in certain English translations like the ESV or other translations. But remember, we're trying to keep God's word in its original cultural definition, in its original context. So yes, sovereignty or sovereign is not found in the Bible, at least nowhere that I can find it. If you found it in the original Hebrew or Greek, I would love to speak with you. I would love to know where it's at. I would love to go find it. Please email me at office.saltandlight at gmail.com. However, I haven't found the word sovereign or sovereignty, but the concept of God's sovereignty is all throughout Scripture. And we've already gone through a large part of that in previous episodes, where we established God's sovereignty through His characteristics. So we can jump ahead to say that if God is sovereign, then by definition, God is the supreme ruler that possesses the ultimate ability to influence the behavior of others and the course of events. The phrase I normally hear after someone says God is sovereign is that God is in control of everything. So in order to qualify that, let's look at what control actually means. Well, when when control is used as a noun, it means pretty much the same thing as the word power. The power to influence or direct people's behavior over the course of events. Pretty identical. And when control is used as an adjective, an action word, control is to determine the behavior or to supervise the running of whatever task you're given. Your manager at work assigns you a task, and then he supervises you running whatever the task is that he gave you. That's control in action. So with these definitions and what we learned in the previous episodes about God's character, it's easy to say God is sovereign and God is in control. God is the supreme ruler that always possesses the ability to influence the behavior of others and the course of events while supervising everything under those tasks. The problem I ran into with a lot of Christians, and even with myself for a while, is that we believe that control and cause are the same word. So the Christian community has tried to supplant the meaning of control with the meaning of cause. And cause, by its definition, is the reason for an action or a condition. To make something happen. So when you hear someone say that God is sovereign, God is in control, there's just always a reason, and you might not know what it is. God's always got his reasons. It's just not for us to know what they are. I heard those statements growing up, and still to this day, many, many times. And statements like that damage God's integrity, his character, and his status. Because saying that God has his reasons is like saying that God is the cause of whatever happens, good and bad, that he's making it happen. It creates a no-fault religion to where all the responsibility is on God and nothing is on you. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God doesn't cause anything to happen. Because God clearly does cause many things to happen. And you see that throughout Scripture as well. Remember, He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere all the time. But just because God can cause things to happen, doesn't mean that He causes everything to happen. And that's a pretty bold statement 
to make. So we're going to go back to scripture and check the facts on that. Where does God cause something to happen? You don't have to go past the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 to see it. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God was the reason light was created. God caused. Genesis 1-6, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament. The Hebrew word for firmament is brachiha. And that's considered by a lot of Hebrews to be a solid or something that can support the waters above. In the Western culture, we would call that the sky. Well, God was the reason that the sky was created. God was the cause. Genesis 1, 9 through 10, God made dry land and the sea that was formed. God caused. Genesis 1, 11 through 13, God made all plant life. God caused. Genesis 1, 14 through 19, God made day and night, the sun and the moon, the seasons of the earth. God caused. Genesis 1, 20 through 21, God made birds and sea life. God caused. Genesis 1, 24 through 27, God made all land animals and mankind. God caused. I haven't even finished the first chapter of the Bible, and you can already see that God has the power to cause things to happen. God has the power to make things happen. But God's control and God's cause are different. And you see this in Genesis chapter 6 with Noah and the flood. I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but I will summarize. You can go back and read it for yourself. God's control aspect, and remember, control is the ability to influence people or to direct the course of events. God sees the wickedness of mankind and decides that he's going to destroy all of mankind and everything on the face of the earth, except for Noah and his family, and you can find that in Gen- Genesis 6, 1-7. through He's not destroying Noah because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Hebrew word for grace there is khan, meaning favor or acceptance. So Noah was accepted in the eyes of the Lord. In Genesis 9 through 22, this is where God really shows how he has the ability to influence people. This is God's control. God tells Noah he's supposed to build an ark. He gives instructions to Noah for the exact dimensions for the size of the ark. What materials to use, how many levels, what you're supposed to fill it up with, your family, two of every kind of animal that's on the land. And then God tells Noah why. God says, I'm going to bring a great flood and destroy everything on the earth. Noah listened to God and he obeyed. God used his control to influence Noah into building the ark. But God didn't cause Noah to build the ark. Now, I can just hear the thoughts running through some people's heads right now because the same thoughts ran through mine. But God told Noah to do that. And you can't tell God no. How do you figure? Noah's a man. Noah's just like you and me, the descendants of Adam and Eve, a fallen and broken race. So why couldn't Noah tell God no? We tell God no all the time. Just think about when you get that feeling inside of you, I should probably read my Bible right now. Maybe I should pray. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that today. I've got too many things going on. All my time is taken up. I don't have time to actually crack the Bible open and talk to God and have a relationship with Him. We tell God no all the time. Again, God didn't cause Noah to build the ark. God didn't make 
Noah do anything. So that was an example of God's control in the situation. Now, where is God's cause when it comes to Noah and the flood? That's simple. Genesis 7, 4 plainly says it. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that have been made. There. An example of God's control and God's cause. God influenced Noah. God made the flood happen. God wasn't the cause of everything in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7. And God was still in control. And if you still think Noah had no choice but to build an ark just because God told him to do it, then let's examine Moses. That means Moses had no choice but to get out of God's way and leave him alone when God told him to do it back in Exodus 32, 7-10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way in which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed they are stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make of you a great nation. God tells Moses to leave him alone. God tells Moses to get down. God told Moses what he was supposed to do. The same way God told Noah what he was supposed to do. The only difference here is verse 11. Instead of doing what God told him to do, Moses pleaded with God and continued the conversation that God had started. God was influencing him and he was trying to influence God. God didn't make Moses get out of the way. And if mankind has to do what God tells us to do all the time, then Moses would have had no choice but to do what God told him to do in that very moment, get down. If Noah had to do what God told him to do, Noah couldn't have had a chance to say no. I'll take it a step further. If Adam and Eve had to do what God told them to do, then they never could have disobeyed God and sin would have never entered the world. Facts are facts. We limit God when we say that He's causing everything to happen. We're diminishing His power. The characteristics of God's sovereignty, supreme ruler, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, all the time, is proven through our ability to say no. How is it proven? Simply put, we can tell God no to the plan that he has for our lives. And God's ultimate plan is still going to happen regardless of what you say. Your no cannot change God's ultimate plan. That's power. So take this week and let that sink in. That's your homework. God's plan is still going to happen with or without you. Look around. See what God is still in cause of. See what God's still making happen. Because He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 See where God causes and where God controls. Let that solidify in your spirit. And next week we're going to examine free will. Where did free will come from? What does God want us to do with it? Remember, 
God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. But God is not the cause of everything. Be bold. Be strong. And be blessed. Have a good one.